Hello, and welcome to the Dark Markets Podcast. I'm your host, David Z. Morris. For our third episode, I'm introducing what I hope will be a regular feature of the show, an audio version of an article from the Dark Markets newsletter. This week, we present The Sins of the Mother, how the $8 billion FTX scam flowed from Barbara Freed's anti-humanist ethics. This essay is part of my larger book project on Sam Bankman-Fried and the forces that made him. You can get access to many other deep dives on this and related topics by subscribing to the Dark Markets newsletter at davidzmorris.substack.com. One of the central oddities of the entire FTX saga is that both Barbara Freed and Joe Bankman, Sam's father, are business and legal ethicists. Barbara's work is the more interesting case here. It appears very likely that her determinist and utilitarian worldview helped prime Sam to be receptive to effective altruism later in life, and helped lay the groundwork for the ethical stances that allowed Bankman-Fried to excuse his gargantuan embezzlement of FTX customer funds. We have much more to come. And make sure you listen back to our previous episodes with FTX class action leader Sunil Kavuri and citizen journalist Tiffany Fong. This episode was written, narrated, produced, and edited by me, David Z. Morris. All music is by Altus Nomina. As with all parts of dark markets, we're still working out the kinks and tucking the corners. So apologies for any sound or other issues. Now please enjoy the sins of the mother. The crimes of Sam Bankman-Fried remain fascinating because they implicate so many powerful forces and groups in our society, and because the extent of that entanglement isn't yet entirely clear. One major entanglement is via Bankman-Fried's parents, Joe Bankman and Barbara Fried. Not just professors at elite Stanford University, but professors of business and legal ethics. His parents' Stanford colleagues Larry Kramer and Andreas Papka contributed to Bankman-Fried's bail, purportedly out of simple support for Barbara and Joe as friends. Stanford law professor David Mills advised on Sam's notably hapless legal defense. Joe and Barbara were also directly implicated in their son's crimes. In court, we saw Joe included in chats between insiders in the final days of FTX. According to Anthony Scaramucci, Joe seems to have known FTX was insolvent by November 7th of 2022 weeks before that information was public, and during a time when his son was still lying to the public about FTX's state. Barbara, according to messages published in a civil lawsuit from the FTX estate, directed the use of straw donors to illegally conceal the source of campaign donations. The question of Joe and Barbara's culpability is recently newly relevant. On Friday, December 29th of 2023, U.S. prosecutors announced that they would not pursue a second trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, previously set for March, on charges including campaign finance and bribery. 
As I explained this week, that decision is sensible on its face because a second trial wouldn't really impact Sam's punishment. But it does mean reduced scrutiny for Barbara's role in the campaign finance fraud in particular. Along with politicians who may be getting out of jail free, that has triggered a swell of public outrage at a perceived travesty of justice. Part 2. Malthusian Progressivism. From Beyond Blame to Facing Up to Scarcity. My focus today, though, is on a subtler but more profound kind of culpability. How much responsibility did Joe and Barbara bear for the way they raised a son who turned out to be an inveterate manipulator, bully, liar, and thief? In particular, Barbara's work as an ethical philosopher appears to be surprisingly central to the broader story of Sam Bankman-Fried. Joe Bankman's scholarship appears largely policy-oriented. But Barbara advocated a radical vision of ethics, and even of what it means to be human, a vision based above all on her firm belief that humans lack free will, and that millennia of conventional human ethical judgment should therefore be trashed. Barbara Freed's mechanistic view of humanity is tied to her die-hard utilitarianism, the belief that all ethical judgment should be oriented to the goal of maximizing total well-being rather than on specific ethical rules. In particular, Freed devoted much of her work to attacking John Rawls, a philosopher whose book A Theory of Justice argued for a fair distribution of rights in society, very roughly, a stance that prioritizes ethical standards over outcomes. Freed's opposition to Rawls is, I'm sure, quite a nuanced thing, but it renders down to a simple fact. Barbara Freed is a legal scholar who doesn't regard justice as an important value, at least not as any normal person would understand that word. Despite her opposition to Rawls' deeply progressive stance, though, Freed viewed her own utilitarianism and determinism as progressive. She deployed it as we'll see, to argue for things like better treatment of prisoners. But her views also displayed a strange tendency to horseshoe around to rather authoritarian sentiments. Her most recent book, for instance, is titled Facing Up to Scarcity, a grim Malthusian dictum that conjures visions of ration cards and work camps. Finally, implicit in Freed's worldview is rationalism, the assumption that the world is fully knowable. Rationalism is effectively a precondition of utilitarianism since the latter relies on the objective measurability of total well-being. This rationalist plank of Barbara Freed's worldview, though often implicit, may have been the most significant influence on her son. It would logically have led him to his fairly obvious belief that the world is a place where odds could be calculated confidently based on knowable facts. Some have characterized Sam Bankman-Fried as a gambling addict, but that image shifts slightly when you consider he was raised to think of the world as a place where the gravest risk of all, the risk of the truly unknowable, simply does not exist. Barbara's utilitarian, determinist, and rationalist view of human existence 
also appears to have made Sam receptive to effective altruism, which increasingly seems best understood as a dangerous and abusive cult. As we heard Carolyn Ellison testify in court last October, utilitarianism informed Sam's belief that prohibition against lying and stealing were not grounded in reason, and that they were therefore optional as long as one's broader intentions were good. Part 3. They're coming to blame you, Barbara. Before we dive in, we have to deal with a thorny question. Why are we looking at Bankman Freed's parents at all? Sam, after all, is the criminal here. But there are extremely compelling reasons that the case of Barbara Freed is an exception to that rule, and then some. Her beliefs were extreme, they were aggressively imposed on her son, and they substantially contributed to his crimes. Finally and most importantly though, they have much in common with a much larger set of beliefs that have become extremely influential among the most powerful people in the technology industry. Barbara and Joe operationalized their apparently shared rationalist beliefs in how they raised their children. This represents at least an imperfect experiment in how an upbringing based on unconventional ideas shapes an individual. The Freeds were atheists and passed that on to Sam, but that barely scratches the surface of their disdain for human mythmaking and ritual. Michael Lewis, who was closely embedded with the family, relates that the children didn't receive gifts on holidays or birthdays. If Sam or his brother Gabe wanted something, they had to provide a good reason they should have it. Later, in fact, Lewis alludes to Sam not even celebrating his own birthday. It is not a tremendous stretch, then, to wonder if the way Sam Bankman-Fried turned out demonstrates the deadly flaws at the heart of rationalism and utilitarianism. Above all, that includes the danger of hubristically assuming the possibility of complete knowledge, and a consequent refusal to reckon with the possibility of mystery in the world. Whether you're running a multi-billion dollar crypto exchange, or just trying to have a good relationship with one other person, coping with the unknown and unknowable are pretty fundamental elements of human thriving. Sam Bankman-Fried is what happens when a child is raised being constantly told that everything is knowable and that they themselves are a uniquely knowing genius. I recently had an exchange with an academic philosopher who told me that there was something of a field-wide professional consensus to lay off Sam's parents. The word he used was omerta. Professional philosophy is an extremely small world, and I would infer from my own time in academia an extremely political one. In a game with stakes as minuscule as the academies, who you piss off matters as much as the quality of anything you produce. The same professional omerta seems to currently swaddle William McCaskill, the leader of the effective altruism movement. Luckily, because I left academia a decade ago, I don't have to deal with that nonsense. I would nonetheless normally be on board with leaving the parents out of it. The sins of the father principle works both ways. But an even more direct and compelling reason to interrogate Barbara Freed's ideas is that she was a public intellectual, 
striving for stature and influence. She promoted her ideas from Stanford, the intellectual center of Silicon Valley, itself a bastion of technological hegemony. Her son turned out to be her most prominent guinea pig, but Freed's academic determinism shares many presumptions with the rationalist worldview increasingly widespread in the Valley. The rationalist ethos is crucially distinct from simply being rational. Instead, it is strongly associated with ideas including long-termism, existential risk, and transhumanism to form what philosopher Emile Torres calls the Tescreal Bundle, T-E-S-C-R-E-A-L, for the various ideologies contained within it. A simple commonality between Silicon Valley rationalism and Barbara Freed's rationalist determinism, though, is that her rationalism is the opposite of humanism. That is, Freed implicitly rejects the notion that there is anything truly special about humans, whether you're inclined to call it free will, a soul, or simply inherent self-determination. While not articulated explicitly in either case, this same underlying assumption is one reason long-termists and the effective altruists who ascribe to long-termism can justify a functional disregard for the fate of currently living humans in favor of those who may live in the future. The rationalist constellation holds increasing sway, not just in professional tech circles, but in public dialogues about tech. Effective accelerationism is also rooted in rationalism, culturally, if not necessarily philosophically. This is why a deeper exploration is important. These ideas have broad influence over some of the most powerful people in our society, and it seems they may be inherently dangerous. Part 4. We are all perfectly innocent. The most accessible summation of Barbara's worldview, published in 2013, is titled Beyond Blame. And yes, I know it sounds like I'm making this up. The piece boils down to a progressive argument for prison reform, but on the extremely overplayed presumption that neuroscience has definitively proven that humans are merely machines. I'm well trained enough as a philosopher myself to know that this is a radical claim that needs far more support than Barbara gives it. But you don't have to trust me. Beyond Blame was the occasion of a roundtable at the Boston Review where it was published, and it was treated to rebuttals from an array of high-profile professional ethical and legal philosophers, which makes for a very convenient snippet of the broader professional discourse. Barbara Freed's main argument in Beyond Blame is that because human action is determined by circumstances like upbringing, humans have no free will. One of the respondents to the essay, Paul Bloom, describes Barbara Freed's stance as, quote, straight out of philosophy 101. To blame someone assumes they could have done otherwise, but all of our actions are caused by our circumstances, including our genes and our upbringing, end quote. Revealingly, Freed simply asserts that determinism is obvious, even if it's not proven yet. Quote, the study of the brain is in its infancy, she prognosticates, 
As it advances, the evidence for determinism will surely grow. End quote. That sentence wouldn't pass muster in a freshman composition paper. She bases her entire worldview, it seems, on the faith that science will eventually discover that the brain is nothing but a computer. As that single sentence makes clear, this itself is nothing but faith, as ultimately are all forms of hardcore rationalism. No different from figures like Eliza Yudkowsky, Freed's work betrays nothing so much as a frantic compulsion to ward off man's greatest and oldest fear, fear of the unknown. In fact, Freed's admitted leap of faith to determinism is not an independent conclusion at all, but a necessary pillar for her rationalism and consequentialism. The ability to predict the future consequences of your actions ultimately requires erasing the unpredictable free will and with it the humanity of others. Be that as it may, Freed spells out how the presumed lack of free will in turn implies that humans should not be judged or blamed for their actions, even those that harm other people. The functional upshot of these arguments is Freed advocating for a more reform-oriented prison system against the current system that she sees as abusive, vindictive, and punitive. It must be said that the essay repeatedly trips on its own feet in the movement between determinism and prison reform. Freed's critique of the prison system is so sensible it goes without saying. Our current prison system is a heinous crime perpetrated in our names. But Freed makes a particularly dramatic error in claiming that the presence of mentally ill people in prison implies that U.S. morality holds them blameworthy for their actions. As Brian Leiter, also a legal philosopher, puts it in his response to Freed, Quote, it is an error to think that the work of professional philosophers in just the last 40 years says anything especially revealing about penal policy. There is nothing I can find in that literature that explains, for example, the extravagantly punitive character of American criminal justice in recent decades. In other words, the presence of the mentally ill in U.S. prisons is a historical political contingency of the Reagan presidency, not a universal stance premised on theoretical ethics. Related to Leiter's point about confusing theory and policy, it is hilariously weak that moderate prison reform is the payout of Freed's argument that no one is actually responsible for any of their actions. Belief in a mechanistic reality is also a premise for Freed's major moral dictum, what's known as consequentialism or utilitarianism. This is roughly the belief that moral judgment should be premised on the consequences of an action, or their expected consequences, rather than on strict moral rules. Freed has spent much of her career arguing for utilitarian ethics, against alternatives including both libertarianism and John Rawls' fairness as justice. Here we get to the central, massive irony of Barbara Freed's philosophy and her story. Utilitarianism became the foundation for the line of thinking that led her own son to commit one of the greatest financial frauds of all time. Sam Bankman-Fried thought he was the utilitarian Kwisatz Haderach, 
a genius able to predict the future. And because of that faith, he took his customers' money and gambled with it. He thought everything would work out fine, and that meant everything he did was okay, because that's what he learned from his mother. As we'll see, a lot of serious thinkers view both consequentialism and, to a lesser extent, determinism as dangerous nonsense. As Paul Bloom puts it in his response, quote, If you take Freed's argument seriously, nobody should be blamed for anything, not the teenager or the corrupt politician or the cheating spouse or anybody else. You also shouldn't praise, admire, or respect anyone as all of those attitudes presume some degree of choice. If we abandon the notion of choice, Bloom says, we lose too much. Part 5. Severe Deprivation. Barbara Freed's Theory of the Criminal Child. It's useless to deny the schadenfreude of conducting an autopsy on Barbara Freed's philosophical corpse. She spent an immense amount of energy on theories about what makes a criminal, only to have those theories proven ridiculously off-base by the actions of her own son. In Beyond Blame, Barbara Freed posits that a determinist universe makes the idea of moral blame incoherent. She instead encourages us to view people who commit crimes as having something like a mental illness. In fact, she conflates criminal behavior and mental illness quite freely. But at the same time, in the absence of any theory of choice, She seems forced to root criminality almost entirely in the circumstances of a person's upbringing. This makes focusing attention on her as the mother of a historically nefarious criminal, not just a gratifying gotcha, but an important rebuttal with much deeper stakes. The irony is specifically rich because Freed envisions only one kind of background that leads to criminality. Growing up poor, or abused. According to her, criminality is a clear outcome of, quote, the severe deprivation most prisoners faced growing up, which, again, she treats as practically interchangeable with mental illness in terms of how we assign responsibility for crimes. That is, she appears to argue that the 15% of prisoners with symptoms of psychosis are morally equivalent to those who grew up poor. Race, class, and education are strongly correlated to the odds of being incarcerated, often for unjust reasons. But that's emphatically not the same as claiming, as Freed does, that the, quote, severe deprivation most prisoners faced growing up shaped their little robotic brains into criminal algorithms. In fact, her formulation lets the broader system off the hook, 
a black man who grew up poor could have a perfectly happy and healthy upbringing, could adopt a firm, clear morality, could even, with some luck and a lot of grit, get a good education. But he'd almost certainly still be at a higher risk of incarceration because the world around him is designed to put him in prison. That is, Freed's determinism, deployed in support of a progressive prison reform argument, still seems to reflect an intensely privileged worldview. It emphasizes how the actions of an individual are determined by their background or circumstance, rather than thinking about how a particular background can rob an individual of any agency whatsoever. Further, Freed's moral focus on the poor obviously doesn't reflect the full spectrum of the backgrounds of people who wind up in prison, a truth that, again, her own son would drive home a decade after she penned these words. This adds to a substantive argument against determinism. After all, people with very similar backgrounds wind up taking wildly different paths through life. Part 6. Compatibilist Calvinism Before we go on, let's lay out the specific point of contention at the heart of the debate here. Do human beings actually have free will? As I discussed in the first half of this chapter, Barbara Freed moves quickly past this question by reference to neuroscience research and the boldly confident prediction that future research would prove her position even more thoroughly. The most widely known neuroscience research on the topic has found something far less concrete than determinism. What researchers have actually found is that not all decision-making is conscious or that decisions are made before we actually experience them as decisions. Findings of this sort only pan out to pure determinism if we conflate the conscious mind with the entirety of human being. That is, Barbara Freed's leap to determinism from current brain science hinges entirely on assuming that there is no such thing as unconscious or pre-conscious thought. These concepts were most famously developed by Sigmund Freud, who we'll encounter again in a bit. Significantly, Freud is absolutely loathed by, and has been the target of a sustained campaign of discreditation by, the precise sort of rationalist and scientistic thinkers of which Barbara Freed is a sterling representative. Scientism is a very important word in our current moment. It means not simply belief in scientific inquiry, but a belief that scientific inquiry is the only valid mode of inquiry and the only valid form of knowledge. Effective altruism, with its love of made-up probabilities and pseudo-logical word games, is the absolute epitome of debased scientism, and Bankman-Fried's destructive downfall is a real-world rebuttal of its narrow-minded approach to understanding. The problem that Barbara Freed was tackling was this. Once one accepts a deterministic universe and specifically deterministic human behavior, there can be no such thing as morality or ethics. Moral judgment is only meaningful if an acting subject is free to choose differently than they do. Of course, this presents a severe practical problem for, you know, having a society. As Freed herself essentially argues, it makes no sense to blame or punish human beings for violating social or ethical norms if we are all effectively robots. 
Instead, she essentially argues that we should conceive of punishment as strictly a reform function. Sometimes you have to reprogram the robot, but there's still no such thing as a bad robot. But this is unpalatable to most people, even if determinism itself were on more solid evidentiary grounds. As Freed reviews in her essay, this has led to a large body of thought on what's known as compatibilism, efforts to reconcile morality with determinism. For her part, Freed seems to regard compatibilism as a kind of cowardice, characterizing it as equivocation. A more generous, curious mind might instead consider compatibilism a provisional attempt to reconcile two very complex counterbalancing truths. On the one hand, neuroscience aside, we can't deny that we are heavily embedded in our environment, guided by genetics and society and other things we can't control. On the other hand, there are very strong reasons that, as Freed says, quote, the majority of contemporary philosophers writing on the subject of free will and ethics are compatibilists, end quote. Despite an increasing awareness of humans' social and biological dependencies, we experience our own existence as a series of choices and sit at the far end of a 10,000-year legacy of holding individuals responsible for their actions. Here again, as Peter Bloom puts it in one of the rebuttals to Barbara Freed's essay, we give up too much if we reject this massive, concrete evidence for at least some form of validity for both free will and, in turn, blame. Instead of grappling with this deeply challenging but fascinating loggerheads, Freed addresses what some might call a straw man, the 16th century theologian John Calvin. Calvin preached two seemingly incompatible theological positions, predestination and sin. Predestination was the idea that certain people were flagged to go to heaven before they were even born, an early articulation of determinism in the form of theology. Sin, on the other hand, is an ethos of blame and individual responsibility. Calvin is just one example, though. Quote, the compatibilist position, Freed writes, has been around for a long time, with the role of determinism played variously by fate, luck, the gods, God, and social and biological forces, end quote. Here again, one sees in Barbara the hubris that marked Sam Bankman freed for disaster. Yes, humans have struggled with this puzzle since the dawn of conscious thought, but I alone can fix it. At the same time, Freed does not seem to reflect much on the fact that she, a materialist atheist, has the same reductive view of human nature as a 16th century religious fanatic who had never heard of a germ. Resolving the intractable conundrum of free will isn't my task here, so I offer only a tentative counterpoint. That free will can be theoretically grounded in the separation of the mind from the brain. The emergence of consciousness from matter may itself be a kind of miraculous conception that removes conscious beings from the flow of materialist fate by giving us the power to think and decide. This is an extension of the concept of the self developed in Alva Noe's recent book, The Entanglement. Noe argues that experience, perception, and ultimately consciousness arise from culture. 
That is, our senses and our brains may be robotic reaction machines in some sort of theoretical state of nature, but in our interaction and communication with each other, and in our interpretation of the world, we learn to shape not just the world, but our own desires and motivation. If consciousness and free will are indeed related to mutual communication and self-reflection, then it's tantalizing to reflect on the relative freedom of Sam Bankman-Fried's will. He was a notoriously bad communicator, at least by his basic nature. As he admitted to Michael Lewis, he had to practice things like facial expressions so that others could relate to him. Maybe Sam Bankman-Fried, at least, was never given the tools to act differently than he did. His mother's theories were absurd and harmful, but when it came to their son, they may have been chillingly accurate. Part 7. Determinism and the Return of the Repressed Barbara Freed's subtly hidden bias against poor people seems to inform a theme of Sam Bankman Freed's upbringing, the implicit assumption that his strange brain implied he was uniquely brilliant. In fact, Sam's brain isn't all that strange, and it certainly isn't unique. He's a sociopathic math whiz with ADHD, which I imagine are a dime a dozen in Palo Alto. But Barbara and Joe repeatedly saw his failure to thrive in school or society and decided it was a sign, not that he was flawed, but that he was extraordinary. As Robert Evans recently pointed out brilliantly on Behind the Bastards, Michael Lewis continued this elite habit of valorizing the strangeness of its own children, mistaking Sam's debilitating video game addiction for some unique gift. Again and again, Michael Lewis recounts stories of Sam being a total screw-up, but paints them as evidence of genius. This blindness could be, at least in Barbara's case, a product of her determinism. She is a good person, and a good mother, who gave Sam a good upbringing. Ipso facto, Sam must be a good person. In comments published days before the start of Sam's criminal trial, Barbara insisted to a New Yorker reporter that, quote, Sam will never speak an untruth. It's just not in him. This is a striking moment of blindness from a person who insists on their own cold, utilitarian rationality. Barbara fails to see who her son really is, because she isn't making a claim about her son at all. She's making a claim about herself and about the conceptual reality she has devoted her professional life to inventing. In that reality, poor people with bad upbringings become criminals, and her own gifted, privileged son could never tell a single tiny lie. In conventional thinking, individuals' varying behavior is explained using terms like character. Independent of their class or circumstance, some people are morally upstanding, some are indifferent, and a few may even be malevolent. By emphasizing the link between poverty and prison, Freed sidesteps the obvious problem that the mere existence of human variation presents to her argument. Part 8. Freud contra Freed one of the humanists against whom Freed's philosophy stands most squarely is Sigmund Freud. 
Freud saw how often his patients, most of them notably privileged, acted against their own interests or lied to themselves habitually, seeming to wrestle with ghosts they didn't even know were there. The power of the unconscious as a site of decision-making is another way of interpreting many of the recent findings in neuroscience that imply some limits on human free will. That is, just because we are not conscious of what our brain is doing doesn't mean it is not our brain, and ultimately ourself, doing it. One key Freudian concept that Barbara Freed has come to unintentionally embody is the return of the repressed. The idea that denying uncomfortable truths ultimately leaves us vulnerable to their ferocious return. In his work with patients, Freud saw the return of the repressed through symptomatic behaviors. For example, a tick or tremor might be the physical manifestation of a thought so dangerous the patient could not entertain it. While her son was on trial, Barbara Freed seemed to be suffering an almost clinically precise episode of eroding repression. As the trial wore on, she developed a violent tremor in her jaw. According to Michael Lewis himself, who had spent extensive time with the family, this was a new tick. A Freudian would see it as a manifestation of the trauma of witnessing her career-defining philosophy pummeled to dust by the unpredictable, non-deterministic, harmful choices made by her own son. But the return of the repressed is not simply an individualized process. Those who came after Freud have expanded the concept to include the possibility that the repressed can return from beneath society-scale acts of denial or willful ignorance including despite collective acts of historical forgetting. Barbara Freed made herself an avatar of just this sort of social-scale repression of the uncomfortable in her role as a professional determinist philosopher. In the course of her son's trial, and in the broader scope of the closing acts of her life, Freed was forced to confront the complexity, even the unknowability, of human motivation, a truth that comes easily to some of us, but that she spent decades holding at bay in her own formal philosophy. Determinism is, among other things, a simple way to sweep away human perversity. Determinism offers the comforting assurance that, while some human behaviors may seem bizarre and even terrifying, a completely rational explanation does exist somewhere in the ether. And via that rationality, we are redeemed. We are all, indeed, perfectly innocent. The deterministic nature of the universe and humanity is also a presumption that underpins both effective altruism and the quest for general artificial intelligence. The EAs assume determinism through time. As Edward Anguiso has put it, the EAs thought they invented psychohistory, the fictional science of materialist prediction posited by Isaac Asimov in his foundation books. But even in Asimov's fiction, a totalizing materialism is always a dangerously impossible horizon. In the reality we live in, no serious thinker believes individual human behavior is functionally predictable, whatever the theoretical or neuroscientific research says. 
In practice, that means the assumption of total rationality only leaves more uncertainty embedded in one's view of the world. If you think you know exactly what will happen next, you're more likely to put yourself in a position to face disastrous consequences when you are, inevitably, proven wrong. I delve into this in my own meditation on Dune and venture capital. This seems almost comically obvious in Sam Bankman-Fried's downfall. It was his very confidence in his own ability to calculate probabilities that led him to take enormous and fatal risks. The tragic farce plays out Freud's return of the repressed on two levels, one for Sam and one for Barbara. First, Sam Bankman-Fried's insane blindness to risk rested on two related ideas that the universe was mathematically predictable, and that he, Sam, had a unique insight into that predictability. The first presumption seems to have come directly through the lengthy philosophical discussions Michael Lewis recounts him having with his parents from a very young age. The second idea, that Sam was a genius, was also certainly conveyed to him first and foremost by the way his parents treated him. Again and again, Michael Lewis depicts them mistaking his flaws and shortcomings as a young person for signs of uniqueness and virtue, just as he did decades later. But of course, Sam had no unique insights, even if the universe is not mathematically determined. He's headed to prison because he made hubristic assumptions on the basis of a deterministic, materialist view of the universe. And through her son's fatal adoption of her own worldview, Barbara Freed suffered the return of the repressed in a second way. Her determinism is a formalized academic analog to the therapeutic subject in denial of their own trauma, disorders, and desires. It is extremely tempting to put her 2013 writing in the context of her son Sam's life. At the time, he would have been about 20 years old, perhaps a time when a parent starts questioning whether their child's strange behaviors are quirks or something more deeply flawed. Doubling down on determinism would have forced Freed to reckon with her own role in what Sam became, but it at least would have allowed her to push away early indications that her son lacked certain basic human intuitions that he was fundamentally flawed at the level of his soul or character, that, in some ultimate sense, Sam was evil. As Freud saw again and again, such rejections, however strategic, inevitably fail. Barbara Freed's nihilistic materialism and its arid deterministic moral universe literally gave birth to a swindling criminal, Even more ironically, while he clearly shared his mother's determinist materialism, Sam constantly positioned himself as free from the threads of fate. He was the unique genius, the constant calculator who could transcend the binds of circumstance to become truly free. At every turn, Sam Bankman-Fried absolutely begged you to impute canny, calculated choice to every one of his decisions a choice that his own professed philosophy assumed does not exist. That, when it comes down to it, was the most important lesson Sam Bankman-Fried learned from his mother's work. 
And it's the same lesson that many of the rationalist tech elite still implicitly hold, from Mark Zuckerberg to Peter Thiel to Sam Altman. The lesson was this, that nobody was truly a person but him.